I'm Joyce Lynn. I'm Tamina Zahiri. I'm Kevin Swiber. And I'm Ruby Sitar. And this is the Breaking Changes Roundtable. This week on the show, we discuss Netflix laying down the law. Ticketmaster is telling Congress, don't blame me for November's Taylor Swift online ticket blunder. And finally, we get real with a dialogue on mental health in tech. So apparently video streaming titan Netflix doesn't believe in the phrase sharing is caring anymore. Uh, In an effort to crack down on password sharing, the company is putting the clamps on your cousin using your login credentials uh, starting in March. Um, so I know they recently just had, uh, an announcement in their, um, their shareholder review saying that they were looking to sort of increase, uh, kind of paid controls around this. Um, so instead of just saying like, you can't share your credentials, apparently now there'll be an option for sharing that you have to pay for. Yeah. I heard it's like a tiered sharing concept. Um, But what I'm curious about is why Netflix is turning their attention to cracking down on password sharing instead of the programming that they have. Because I feel like in terms of competition, like you have HBO Max, you have Paramount Plus, you have all these different streaming platforms and they all each have like their own brand and they're particular about their programming. So instead of, you know, restricting users to having a paid plan or sharing passwords, they're more focused on the content that they're producing. I'm just curious as to why maybe that hasn't been a focus for Netflix. I think over the last decade, they have spent a ton of money on new series. They've been really experimental with it and they'll do like a season, see how it picks up and then drop it. But I I want to say this last year was the first time they they saw a decrease in their subscription count. Um, And I guess they're choosing to blame it on the, the license, the sharing of passwords. Well, I think um, they're facing competitive pressures. Ruby, you were talking about all the different other providers. There's a lot of alternatives for people uh, who want to stream and or just consume content in general. And so I think at a certain time with the economic conditions, you have to make money. And then this is probably where they're making money. I know Postman has um, has a terrible issue with people sharing their logins. And uh, I thought it was kind of creative how our company chose to deal with it, where I don't know if you guys know this on the terms, but like, you're not supposed to share your login. And a lot of times there's sensitive stuff like API keys or like whatever you want to keep. Other teams don't care about that. And so for us, we have a first in first out policy. So say there's, you know, a couple people, I share my credentials with Kevin and Tamina, and then Ruby comes on, like I get kicked off, you know, so it's, I'm going to be incentivized to not share my password as much. I feel like there's something we don't talk about here, right? So you mentioned the kind of economic conditions, and this is, you know, an announcement coming out in a shareholder meeting. Um, so, like, I'm wondering if they're if they're thinking what is per- our like perceived loss here, and because of the economic conditions, do we have to give the impression that we are doing everything we can to combat those losses? Like, the reality is, sharing passwords probably made Netflix streaming as successful as it is today, right? Like the first time you have access to that Netflix stream is probably somebody else's account. And then suddenly maybe you want to sign up for your own subscription. Yeah, I think that with the new ad version of Netflix that just came out this last year, there's going to be a lower entry point as well. And people may be okay with having to pay for multiple streaming sources, especially as they actually 
can't access them anymore without an account. Um, they'll be IP banning people who log into an account that they're not a household member for um, from dif from different you know locations. So I think that they're trying to monetize a group of people who just haven't been paying anything to support what Netflix has been putting out. Um, but whether or not you know that works, we're gonna wait and find out. Yeah, Tamina, you mentioned uh, how Netflix is kind of defining households. That's something else that I've been thinking a lot about and how they're determining what a household is. Because sometimes with my Netflix account, I'm traveling. Like I'm at an Airbnb and I want to log into my Netflix account. Am I going to be kicked out? This is like a user experience that I'm going to have to consider at this point. I, so I read that they have actually already released this in um, Chile, Costa Rica, and Peru. Um, or I think they've already released it in those, uh, in those countries and the U S is coming towards the end of Q1. Um, and basically if you do travel, there's a code that you enter to say, Hey, this is me traveling right now. So I can access my account. Um, they definitely have some, some technology behind tracking where you're logging in and whether or not you're actually part of that household or not. So when I travel, I have to let my bank know. I have to let Netflix know. <laughs> it's going to be a situation then. So easy. <laughs> I mean, that brings up an interesting privacy concern, right? Like the data they're collecting on us, um, you know, it, how much are they collecting? What are they collecting? Like, clearly they've got an IP address. They can use some GOIP, you know, database to figure out where we are in the world based on that. But then there's also the device ID, right? And then knowing everyone else who used that device, right? Like Netflix probably knows everyone who's been to the same Airbnb as I have because they've logged into the same advice on device with their account. At what point do we say, hey, actually, you're collecting too much data? I think in terms, sorry, uh, in terms of like Netflix, I honestly don't mind how much data they're collecting on me because I feel like they're catering the the content that I have to me specifically, which I don't mind. Um, but that is that is a valid question, I think, that we should be considering uh, because different people have different comfort levels, of course. Yeah. Ruby's uh, like, I in case it's... anyone from Netflix is watching this, just keep my account the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love your streaming. Don't change anything. <laughs> It's like those yearbook comments, please don't change. <laughs> I think if it stays in a bubble of what Netflix is recommending me, like if I go to France for a month, do I would I want it to recommend French movies? Sure, why not? But it it for me it goes into at what point are they selling my data to third party advertisers who are like, Oh well, she's been watching movie movies or TV shows related to X, Y, and Z, so we're going to advertise this to her on other platforms to get her to buy additional things. You know what I mean? That at that point that's where I'm like, you know, don't sell my data, but use it to enhance my experience on your platform, sure, but don't don't use it to psychologically, you know, influence me to purchase things uh, through other companies. I'd rather you didn't do that. I think it's an interesting evolution. I met somebody who used to work at Netflix that went to go work, work for Walmart. And I was like, what? Oh, Netflix is such a prestigious tech company. And you're going to go work for Walmart Labs, which isn't unprestigious, but it has a consumer brand, right? Versus a tech brand. Um, and he had something really interesting to say. He said, Netflix used to be a tech company. Now it's a content company. They've evolved, right? They used to just be the streaming platform. And now Ruby's talking about all the different content. Tamina's talking about the way they test 
pilots and stuff. And now Walmart Labs used to be just an econ, just a retail brick and mortar shop. And now they're experimenting with all sorts of like tech things. So, you know, that's an example of one tech company who has migrated from being known for tech. And then another one that's like, now they have a really hot tech brand. Bizarre Voice was one that started out as as a reviews company and has now turned into a data company. And I think we're going to see that happen more and more often. Data is so valuable. Um, it that that more more organizations are going to turn into data companies and sell sell our data before we know it. And I think in some sense, this locking down on shared accounts is going to support Netflix's data, uh, you know, assets on us because they can really pinpoint individuals and specific households where it's coming from um, because they're going to be tracking it. Well, next up, Congress, Taylor Swift, and her fans all have one anti-hero in common, which is Ticketmaster. Will they be able to shake it off? We're going to discuss this next on Breaking Changes Roundtable. So Congress is united, uh, bipartisan unison on this for the first time in a while, in an effort to break up the love story between Ticketmaster and Live Nation. It all stemmed from um, a fiasco surrounding bands trying to buy tickets for Taylor Swift's upcoming North American Eras tour, and the tickets were allegedly snatched up by bots driving up the resale market, sometimes to $20,000 a ticket, um, and causing the website to crash. What do you guys think about this? Have you been keeping track of this legal battle? I think the last time this happened, Ticketmaster said this is never, ever, ever happening again. Did you see what I did there? No. <laughs> I feel like Ticketmaster is blaming bots like like we would 50 Cent for buying out all of Ja Rule's tickets. Like, I'm not sure that it's necessarily only bots. I know in that Senate hearing, there was the M word used, Monopoly. And that's something else that I'm thinking about because a lot of these artists, I'm thinking about Beyonce with her tour coming up. She's going to have to rely on larger venues and some of those larger venues are tied to Ticketmaster. Um, because they're the only ones that are in connection with it. That's interesting. So there really is no like marketplace for tickets when events happen, right? Like typically some, usually Ticketmaster, right, has the all of the tickets there. But there's no like marketplace where you go and you bid and like you get the best price. Um, but it seems like that is probably happening on the secondary market, right? Like people are buying all the tickets or using machines to buy all the tickets and then reselling them. And I'm sure there's there's some competition there. Um so it's it's interesting to think like if we're talking about um, some kind of antitrust situation and and Ticketmaster has to get broken up, are we actually taking away from that secondary market um, and having a legitimate marketplace for ticket sales? I mean, I think that Ticketmaster's incentivized for there to be multiple ticket sales and resales because they make money off of every time that ticket is sold. So a bot can come in, they purchase a hundred tickets, they pay, you know. It's $100 to Ticketmaster. They go back to sell each ticket and then Ticketmaster takes more money again off the top of that. So at the end of the day, I don't think Ticketmaster is disincentivizing bots or resale of tickets at higher uh, higher values. Um, and then the venues don't have a choice. The venues and Ticketmaster work together. So there's no choice for artists to go with an alternative solution that would disincentivize higher ticket prices. 
they're locked in. I personally, um, I love a good bot, but I understand that it doesn't feel fair to the people that don't have access to create their own bots or don't feel like going through that game. And I think um, the issue here was it it was bots. It was bots that, bots that took down the system. There's no possible way it could have been humans. They essentially DDoSed the Ticketmaster site. It went down. And while it was it was pretty hilarious seeing some of these videos of people like just hysterically crying about not being able to get T-Swift tickets. It, you know, like it, it brings in a question, is it fair? Can you use bots? Is it, is, is fair the same thing as illegal or is unfair being the same thing as illegal? Yeah, but are we talking about like Joyce Lynn made a bot to do this? Or are we talking about like some big organization made like a thousand bots out there to go do this, hoard all of the tickets and then make a killing off of it? If I knew that they were reselling for $20,000, this would have been my bot. Oh gosh, <laughs> that's so, such a huge secondary market. I mean, at the end of the day, is it in favor for the artist? Does the artist want that for their fans? I don't think so. The artist isn't making extra money off of this either. So there is this big secondary market that's not, you know, being managed by the artist that's not in favor of anyone except the middleman and as well as Ticketmaster. Um, so, I, I mean, I think if artists had a chance, they would work with a venue or a provider that wouldn't allow this to happen. Bots are definitely a part of it, but I don't know that they're the only problem here uh, that should be focused on. Like we mentioned the monopoly earlier, but there's also like a history with Ticketmaster and people being dissatisfied with them because of all of these fees that they have no control of um, and that are seemingly random. And Ticketmaster is also claiming to have no control over the, these fees and not be owning any of the setting up of those fees. So that's something else I think that Ticketmaster is struggling with um, in addition to this bot fiasco. The antitrust, um, no, no options. Artists don't have options. Consumers don't have options. And then all roads lead through Ticketmaster. Because it's because Ticketmaster and Live Nation um, merge together. And so Ticketmaster is the promoter and Live Nation is the venue holder. So having those two be one and the biggest is causing some big issues. Um, so it's interesting to see where where it's gonna go in a legal place. I mean, even the CEO of SeatGeek, a competitor, a competitor to the Ticketmaster came, uh, sat on the seat and made a claim that um, it's clear that they're just too big right now and there's no competition for either for them to to be, you know, working competitively to support the end user. Yeah. So, I mean, this is on Congress then, right? Like if we're talking about a monopoly, if we're talking about an antitrust suit, like as products mature in the market, they lean towards commodity, they go towards utility, right? Like how much choice do you have and who provides your electric or gas at your house, right? Like you really don't, but there's a lot of regulation around that industry as well. Um, these are like, you know, entertainment thing. This is like ticket. Like I don't need Taylor Swift concerts to live. Maybe I do, but you know, like it's, it's not a necessity for, for my well being. I don't think. Um, so I, I think Congress does have some kind of responsibility to go in there and say, Hey, like you are not allowing for competition in the market. We're seeing like other antitrust cases come out right now, like around, uh, Google and their ad tech. Um, so it, it seems to be, 
you know, something that they're definitely looking at right now, technology companies that may have a monopoly over certain industries. So if um, the legal part of it is out of our control, I do want to go back to the bots because that's my favorite piece. I personally, um, Kevin, you answered earlier, is it a one person making a bot or is it a big conglomerate or company that's creating an army of bots? I personally have created a bot to do something that was very selfish because I knew how to make the bot and I knew how to get the thing. How unethical was that? I it, I wasn't like upsetting Swifty fans. However, people were upset at me. Like, is that unethical? What was the job of your bot? Good question. To snag, <laughs> to snag something when it was first available. Like sneakers? Like, I feel That's like there's a... Like a spectrum of. First of all, do you think I'm a sneakerhead, Ruby? I'm so flattered. I, know, I only ever see this part of Joy's. Yeah, <laughs> you haven't seen my feet. Um, yeah, so I am somewhat proud, but somewhat ashamed of this. But um, in California, there's Yosemite camping spots, and there's like really good spots. So they open at a certain time, and now um, you know everyone they sell out within seconds. They get booked within seconds. So the only way like you can get it besides luck and being like the very first person to push that button is to build a bot. Ethical, unethical, I think it's hard to say because do I think sometimes it might be unfair for some people? Sure. But do I think that it's going to become the norm as we continue barreling down the this this universe that we're in? Yeah, I don't think it's unethical. I think some people are unhappy about it, but that that probably was the case when we the first caveman made the first tool, um, and then the second one, you know, copied him and did the same thing, him or her. Um, so I don't think it's unethical. I just think that yeah, people aren't happy about it. But do I think okay. do I think that there need to be things in place to mitigate the effects of someone doing it with the intent of monetizing? their their skill over other people when in the past it was luck based yeah i think we need to we need to start being aware of these things well before anybody else chimes in and disagrees with tamina that it's totally ethical let's uh, move on to our next topic and uh bring it to a more serious topic we're going to talk about silicon valley's pressure cooker next all right um we're all techies here so in an environment that has a mecca of creativity all night coding sessions and computers rapidly making human labor obsolete where do we currently stand when it comes to managing mental health in the fast-paced world of tech i mean i don't know about you guys i've definitely had a breakdown <laughs> in like my tech career multiple times um at the same time, though, it's an interesting balance where a lot of tech companies strive to provide a work-life balance now or re access to resources and sessions on mental health. And I don't think, you know, the same can be said for a lot of other industries. But whether or not people are like making use of all of those resources or those resources even solve the root causes of the burnout. You know, that's that's a different answer slash question. Yeah, I think this is beyond just tech as like uh, like a vertical industry, right? I think it is kind of culture in technology teams. Even if, if you're just working on some IT team, um, you know, for for an enterprise company, um, I think a lot of the culture in tech pushes people to overproduce. Um, 
And like, as soon as that becomes part of the culture and the expectation, then you start seeing things like heroics get rewarded over people who are just trying to do the regular old job, right? And it puts more pressure on everybody to, to keep producing more and more and more. Meanwhile, like burnout is just going out of control, um, you know, around, around the world in, in tech jobs. I, I remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about Elon Musk asking people to stay around the clock. Some people were sleeping at the Twitter office um, during that whole fiasco. And he was asking people to be hardcore and to prove yourself. And if you weren't hardcore enough and you weren't sleeping here and like really kind of, there was pride in kind of working yourself to the bone. And so that really setting that tone at the top um, propagates to every department. Yeah, uh, you both have touched on uh, Kevin and Joyce here on productivity culture um, and the things that we choose to reward. And Joyce, you just mentioned what we, how we set the tone and what we expect from folks. I think that's what this all kind of boils down to, right? Our, our burnout can be attributed to the things that we reward at, at our companies and our cultures. If you're rewarding somebody for working long weekends because they struck that deal finally that we've been working on for so long, rather than, you know, you know, giving them their accolades for doing this amazing thing. I think a conversation should also happen with that person and let them know, like, yes, you did this awesome thing, but next time let's think about how we can do that within a reasonable uh, time frame during work hours. Like, how can I support you as a leader to get that done when, you know, it should be during a reasonable time? Um, I feel like those conversations aren't happening and aren't being pushed as much uh, these days. It's, yeah, I'm just curious what you all have witnessed and how you think about uh, positive reinforcement in the workplace. I think that there's an issue. I think that there's an issue with, you know, founders. Especially, so when I think think about tech, I think a lot about startups as well. Um, but even when you go up to large enterprises, they start getting conscious about creating and saving money in as many ways as possible um, with the least amount of work or, you know, impact on their bottom line. And these founders are taking millions and millions of dollars in funding and promising faster and faster turnarounds and returns on that funding back to investors. Big companies are worried about little companies taking over their markets. And there's so much fear and competition in the market. It's so hard for me to see people actually asking any employee to slow down um, until they see like the impact of that on their workforce as a whole. Um, but I don't think I've ever, ever heard anyone say work slower or at a more reasonable pace in my, in my career so far. It's always I, work more. I've heard um, a lot of companies be proactive. I'm not sure if it accomplishes it, but to me, I've heard some companies require um, their employees to take the vacation that they're allotted. Yeah. Uh, you have to take that vacation. Um, I've heard some switch their scheduling to like four tens and saying, mm -hmm. take every Friday off, but work longer during the week, but then take every Friday off or have mandatory. No, uh, actually it's been enforced mandatory, uh, wellness days, you know, yeah. to spend and do whatever you want, anything but work. I think one difficult aspect of this is that it requires a certain amount of self-awareness and kind of disconnecting from that culture that tells you to keep producing and producing and producing. I've, uh, I've been through burnout several times, um, you know, throughout my, my tech career. 
Um, and I was recently having a conversation with my therapist actually. And I said, Hey, I think I'm approaching burnout again. And my therapist said, Kevin, you've been in burnout for the last three years, right? So there's even an element of saying like, I'm so used to being exhausted and, and just at my wits end that it becomes the new normal. And when it's your normal, you don't even notice that you're a, a fish, you know, breathing the water, right? Like it's just all around you. So there's, it almost requires our, our leaders in tech and our peers in tech to say, hey, I think maybe you do need to slow down, right? Like, hey, I noticed you've been putting in a lot, a lot more work. I noticed that you're working late nights. Like, I, I think being mindful of the culture requires us to actively work against it um, and take care of our, fo- our folks. And as a hiring manager, I used to ask people questions about what do you do in your spare time? Do you have any side projects? Are you working on, are you hacking on any kind of projects? And in my mind, I was asking this because if somebody's really passionate about tech or development or like whatever it is, you're kind of like putzing around doing these kind of side quests. But I think that is also an unhealthy expectation to have. Some people want to make have a well-paying job and, you know, take care of their families and then go home and then live actual life. And so having that separation and getting rid of that expectation that people are spending nights and weekends on hobby projects is um, something that I've corrected in myself. That is something that I've heard a lot of actually. And a lot of folks asking about is what are those side projects? What are, how are you uh, professionally developing outside of work? Um, And I think that puts on this like implied pressure as well that you were kind of touching on there, Joyce. That was something that I hadn't actually thought about until you brought it up right now. So I'm grateful that you did. Well, and I'm a manager too. And I am very, very conscious of when I say I'm taking vacation, I try dang hard to not be checking into email, not be responding to Slack, because I think that just sets a poor example for anybody, even if I tell them, Hey, it's okay, please take this time off. I don't want to see you checking in. If they see see me doing it, then it's like, uh, I don't know. Part of it. Yeah. is like the modeling from our leaders. Are they taking that vacation? Are they actually tuning out? Like we see them and we know that they're setting that tone for us to use that word again. Um, and then also I think there's a responsibility on leaders to make sure and keep track of the time off that folks are taking. Joyce, you mentioned before that uh, some folks try to ensure that they're taking all of their time off. But I think in addition to that or on top of that, you can see uh, we have like unlimited PTO at Postman, for example. How much of that are you taking advantage of per month, per week? Like that's something you can check in on with somebody. Well, companies that have unlimited PTO typically have people take less vacation. That's the stat behind that. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, too. No one's really checking in on it. But one thing I did want to mention, Kevin, you mentioned burnout, which I think is just like rampant in tech. And um, there still is a stigma around talking about mental health. So, Kevin, you talking about burnout and talking about your therapist and talking about your struggles is huge. One organization that I've heard about is open source um, mental health, specifically for tech with resources geared towards developers and other folks with technical roles, just even talking about it and then kind of like making it a little bit more okay is um, still not widespread. Like if you, if you talk about burnout, then maybe you're perceived as weak or not hardcore. Well, I guess I won't be working at Twitter because I admitted to having burnout, but (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. I think there, there is, uh, we need more honesty 
in the industry, right? And I think for a lot of people recently who have gone through all these tech layoffs, they're just realizing like, oh, I've been burned out. And it took me getting laid off <laughs> to realize that I'm no longer in that environment anymore. And perhaps I wasn't you know, doing the best for my own mental health. Um, hopefully it doesn't take such a big event for everyone else to get that, that awareness. Um, but it is, uh, it is definitely something I think we do need to keep paying attention to moving forward. Yeah. I'm glad you all brought up honesty and authenticity. We're going to move on now from this topic, uh, to lighten things up a little bit. We'll be taking our parting shots next on breaking changes Roundtable. All right. So let's talk about our favorite childhood cartoon. I'll start. For me, it was The Simpsons. This was an animated series about a family with very interesting characters, but one character that I really connected with was Lisa Simpson. I feel like she always stood her ground. She knew what she stood for, um, and she never backed down from what she believed in. So that was something I really admired, especially as a child. Joyce, what was your favorite childhood cartoon? Lisa Simpson is a good one. Um, I feel like this is just a, you know, like a generational, like what generation of cartoon did you grow up with? I loved cartoons. Um, this was a hard one, a good one to think about, but I, uh, my favorite cartoon character was, um, well, not the car character, but my favorite cartoon was DuckTales. So I was about to say Scrooge McDuck was my favorite. No, no, no. But that was my favorite one. DuckTales. Ooh, that one. <laughs> My um, mine was also The Simpsons, Ruby, um, but I don't know how much I would say The Simpsons was a children's show, and we watched it pretty young when we moved to the U.S., and my mom and had no clue. She was like, oh, it's a cartoon. It must be for children, and then she watched an episode once, and she was like, I'm going to screen these before I let the kids <laughs> watch them after school, so there were a few we weren't allowed to watch, but I did also really align myself to Lisa. I loved her, and Ooh, um, two Lisa Simpsons. Just like my brothers. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? I feel like I have to say DuckTales now just to keep it symmetric. But um, <laughs> no, so this is this is a, a hard question, I think. And I think it is trying to reveal our generations. I think it's a, a trick question. So, you know, it'll be really telling if I'm like Steamboat Willie, Mickey Mouse. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but I think uh, probably around the same time as DuckTales, there was a show called Tailspin that was based off of like the Jungle Book characters, uh, like Disney's The Jungle Book. Uh, and it was like, you know, these characters in modern times having like adventures. So like, you know, giant animals uh, with human personas uh, acting, you know, through adventures. I'm not sure why that was a favorite of mine necessarily, um, but, you know, good writing. I appreciate good writing. Hopefully it'll come to our favorite streaming uh, network soon. Well, like, comment, and subscribe to Breaking Changes Roundtable. And until next time, cheers. I want to know how many of you guys have Netflix accounts of you? Everyone, right? <laughs> A I'm using honest question. Oh, oh. <laughs> that was meant to be a secret. <laughs> Pleading the fifth. You need to plead the fifth. <laughs>